Welcome to the Power of podcast series. In our collection, we dive into critical, thought-provoking and contemporary content to stimulate debate and dialogue, all with the aim of driving gender equality in global health. I'm Joanna Riha, a research fellow within the Gender and Health Hub at the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health, based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. In this episode, we continue with a theme centering on the power of feminist civil society. In the last episode, we heard from Jessica Horn about a recent think piece she authored on how feminist movements led change through their expertise, capacity, and influence to really anchor and build a field of activist public health that responds to violence against women and girls. In this episode, we hear from two fantastic guests in Mexico who provide a very contemporary example from the perspective of national government and feminist civil society on how priorities converged in the development of a national strategy which ensured more gender equitable access to COVID-19 vaccinations. Carla Berdichevsky-Feldman is Director General of the National Center for Gender Equity and Reproductive Health in Mexico. And joining Carla in this conversation from the feminist civil society perspective is Rafaela Schiavon, who's an obstetrician and gynecologist, as well as a feminist and public health expert with extensive experience, both clinically and in research, and who has a long-standing commitment to political activism in reproductive health. So welcome, Carla and Rafaela. It's such a pleasure to have you here as part of our podcast. We're really going to dive into a very concrete example of effective partnerships that were formed between government and feminist civil society actors in addressing a gendered dimension with regards to COVID-19 vaccine access. And I wondered if you could tell us about how pregnant women were included in Mexico's national COVID-19 vaccination strategy and talk us through a little bit about how this effective partnership was formed. Yes, thank you so much, Joanna. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak to your audience as we do feel we had a very efficient collaboration between us in the government at the Ministry of Health and our civil society partners, in this case, Rafaela, that is uh, with us on the podcast today. And I think it's worth framing our discussion with regards to the establishment of a technical advisory group for COVID vaccination that was independently set forth to guide the vaccination policy at the national level. And uh, Rafaela will surely speak on her part as, as she was invited to be part of this group. But I came along to the actual discussions as we began seeing what the impact of COVID was around women's health as was expected from international organizations actually forecasting what would happen in terms of uh, women's health and access to health. But also we began seeing an impact on our first cases of maternal deaths from COVID 
And this rang an alert and how us at the National Center for Gender Equity became involved in these discussions around the question of should women have access to vaccines, pregnant women, because of these projections from the international arena and the, the actual group of evidence that was beginning to to form internationally. So here I think there is a highlight to be made on the importance of bringing in civil society and especially feminist women into these discussion groups, which is very critical in terms of developing policies that respond to women and that are actually built with a gender-sensitive lens. And that is how I think we began working and really value what this collaboration was from its establishment, but along this process of decision making to have a policies that, that really do have a focus and a gender lens from the beginning. No? So I'll, I'll let Rafa speak a little bit towards uh, how she, she became involved and how she was invited into the group. Yeah, thank you, Carla, and thank you, Joanna, and thanks to your audience. Like Carla said, and I would like to comment, it's extremely important from the beginning to include gender lens and civil society in general within the technical advisory groups or the technical discussion overall, because the gender lens and the civil society perspective is complementary and adds a lot of values to the technical and the public health perspective. And uh, Carla said that in Mexico, we start seeing some of the impacts that COVID pandemic was having on maternal health, but not only on maternal health. And I think this is important to introduce another concept that we were discussing before. Sometimes we have this silos perspective around public health problems, not only from the health specialists, but from the uh, civil society too. The COVID pandemic was not always and not immediately seen as a gender issue. There were few technical alerts at the beginning about the impact that the pandemic was having or could have on women's health in general, not only maternal health, because of her reproductive role, but also her social role in terms of beginning with the proportion of women that are working in the health sectors, for example, so they become the one of the first targets of the pandemic, but also the, the role they have in the uh, economy of care, in the family, in the society, paid care, and so on. And then we came down to the concrete impact on maternal health that has been very, very high and very a very high price that women are paying in Mexico and in Latin America in general. We had not seen that at the beginning in the international arena, but we were having data and connecting with colleagues both public health colleagues and civil society colleagues in the Latin America region. And that was becoming so evident that the issue of vaccination 
in pregnant women became a priority. Um, of course, I was one of the person who raised the priority and connected with Carla about this strategy within the technical advisory group because it was not felt as a priority first. And then there were a lot of fears about the health, the adverse, potential adverse effect in pregnant women, the lack of sound information about the vaccine in pregnant women. And that's another story we can discuss. Can I just ask, is it routinely the case that feminist civil society actors are invited into these technical groups? Or was this really a very special case? Well, I think this is a special case because none of us has, had been through a pandemic of this magnitude. And I think at the time when this group was instituted, and I'm, I, I wasn't part of it from the beginning, as I explained, there was an obvious need to build in a group that had this outsider view on the problem and that could actually bring in informed decision-making and actually contribute to uh, the dynamics that were already very complicated for us in, in government as we had to oversee many other aspects of the pandemic, as well as uh, take care of our own health and of our own team's health. And it was very timely, and I think it was unique because uh, we hadn't been through something like this. I think there is a dynamic within the government, at least within the Ministry of Health, where we are always uh, constituting groups with civil society experts, civil society organizations that really inform policies throughout. I'm sure there are opportunities to always improve our collaborations and to keep this participation as a transverse process. And I think we do sometimes fragment the process for very specific purposes, mostly when we sit and, and, and build technical documents. Uh, but there is an opportunity, I guess, to strengthen for example, uh, overseeing uh, the implementation of policies and actually the evaluation of policies. And I think that is, is a weak spot in the routine incorporation of, of civil society and specifically feminist organizations or, or individuals. I think in general, Mexico has had a long history of collaboration between government and civil society. As Carla said, in the emergency of the pandemic, it was not easy to think in this way. And I think my participation in the group is not actually as a civil society organization, it's more in the bioethical sort of perspective. I am a member of the Bioethical National Committee, and I am a member of that as a civil society organization. So there is this mixed participation that is, I think, has been very useful. And I have another colleague in that group that is a lawyer, that is a bioethical expert, that is also a member of the Bioethical College in Mexico, that is a civil society organization. Thank you. I think those other examples are really useful to sort of situate the formation of this technical working group. Following on, I guess, I wanted to ask a little bit about the decision-making process in particular and how it was implemented. Could you talk us through a little bit of that, you know, from that perspective? 
Yes, thank you. I think I will speak to all of you from a public health perspective. I think that while we were faced at these bits of information that were already signaling there was a need to build a policy around uh, pregnant uh, women and uh, COVID vaccination, there was very little information for decision making. And what we had was coming from developed countries where we know the situation specifically around maternal health and linked to maternal deaths is not particularly translatable to the context in Mexico, as we are faced with still important gaps towards moving in this obstetrical transition process where we could see that avoidable or preventable maternal deaths have been taken care of, as in developed countries. So we're not there yet. And the information that was available was coming in from developed countries with a very different composition of a problem in terms of the baseline maternal health issues. And we began these processes of making consultations with other Latin American countries. We felt that the, the, their situations would be similar. We wanted to hear if they were registering maternal deaths as we were seeing in Mexico early on in the pandemic. And we only found a reference with uh, Brazil. We heard from our uh, counterparts in the um, Pan American Health Organization, whom we used as a consultation process, that they had registered maternal deaths, but we didn't have a broader picture that would help us uh, determine if this was going to be a problem as we were seeing early uh, in the, the pandemic. I think that these initial appreciations of the impact of the pandemic really minimized the impact on women and the scarce data also on information with regards to use of the vaccine, not only in pregnant women as these first clinical trials, the phase three clinical trials did not include pregnant women, but also did not include use among adolescents. And considering that we have a very important problem with adolescent and girl pregnancy in the country, left us with very little information from which we could develop our own policies. But I do have to say that these very initial registers of maternal deaths linked to COVID, but also Fortunately, available data on the impact of the pandemic because there was a, an epidemiological registry where we could take information from the impact of these cases and had a good database from which to analyze data allowed us to take these first steps in analyzing the risk that women were facing with regards to the pandemic, but the pregnant women's risk. So it was a very difficult initial first stage. Consultations through this technical group were, were implemented and sent to international experts, international bioethicists, advisory groups at an international level, because we had very little information 
to begin with, which was a complicated scenario because from a feminist perspective and from a gendered lens perspective in terms of trying to implement a policy that would protect women from this risk, it was hard for us, the feminists and the, the reproductive health experts, to advocate for a policy that was going to include pregnant women and pregnant adolescent women and girls. I subscribe everything Carla said so far, and I would like to compliment and to add, and also to come back a little about this lack of data at the beginning about the safety and effectiveness of vaccine in pregnant women. And this is a long-term problem because pregnant women are not usually included in phase two, phase three clinical trials of anything, drugs and vaccine. And this is a problem. This is a problem that we think we analyze. Public health experts can have a justification about it, but bioethicists and feminist group have another one. And I think one of the big bottlenecks in this field is the potential liability that the industry has and feel to have with pregnant women, not really with women, with their products, and that potential impact that a negative, severe adverse effect in the product could generate the need for legal termination of pregnancy and all the legal and human rights and sexual rights issues that the Uh, uh, surrounds these kind of decisions. So pregnant women are always left out of this clinical trial, and that means that the benefits of these clinical trials, trials do not include pregnant women. We think that women have the autonomy and the capacity to give informed consents to be included from the beginning in these clinical trials. So, as a result, we were faced with a lack of information about the safety, mainly, and effectiveness of vaccination in pregnant women. And the first data came from real-world experience, basically, as Carla said, in developed world, in United States, mainly, with this follow-up system that they have about safety of vaccination in women. From the beginning of a vaccination experience, among pregnant women who were health workers, and who themselves decided that the potential benefit of, of being vaccinated were overwhelmingly superior to the risk. So scratching up from, from this initial information, we started advocating for the importance of protecting pregnant women with their informed decision with vaccination. And another gatekeeper of bottlenecks were the type of vaccines that we could use, because initially the information were only limited to two types of vaccine. I won't mention them, but it's mainly mRNA platform. And in Mexico and in the rest of Latin America and in the rest of developed, developing worlds, access to vaccine, to this type of vaccine was limited. And so we had to decide 
about allowing and even recommending vaccination with other vaccine platforms. And again, we consulted with experts and colleagues in the bioethical and feminist, or with a bioethical and feminist perspective. And I think this also can underscore the importance of networking, of international networking in the community, in the feminist community, and in the technical field, but also with these gender and feminist and women perspective. Thank you so much, Rafaela. How does one avoid inviting perhaps a civil society actor and it's tokenistic as opposed to genuinely valuing that perspective? Because I feel like there are calls for broadening and being more inclusive in terms of civil society perspectives, but often it's just tokenistic and it's more like a tick box. And I don't know if either of you have views on, on how to avoid that. It's a hard question, and I agree with you, Joanna, that it's uh, now politically correct to include civil society or feminist in general in specific advisory group talks, discussion, and so on. My first answer would be it's a right issue. It's not something that you should discuss. It must be taken My second answer would be we have the challenge to show through evidence the benefits of always including this gender perspective in the development of policy, how these are able to improve the implementation and the outcomes of these policies when this feminist perspective is taken into account from the beginning. And I think that building the evidence is difficult. It's not of this specific strategy, of this specific perspective. It's not easy. It's not always qualitative evidence as we are used to take into account in, in health and in public health issues. It's also qualitative evidence. And it's evidence that we have to build not only from the service perspective, we always evaluate our policy from the service perspective. We have to evaluate it from the client's perspectives, from the women, from the adolescent. And well, these are challenges, but we must be able to build on the evidence that this strategy, this vision, this perspective provides to our citizens overall. Joanna, I would add that in terms of not only meeting a, a quota, I think that the, the degree of the participation and the, the quality of that participation needs to be evident in the process. And you would be limited to a quota when you sit down, you have a meeting, and you look at whoever's at the table and actually see that civil society or feminists are there, but it, it, the result from that is not actually uh, seen in the substance of the collaboration. And I would say you would not be working just filling a quota when you see that you establish a process that is implemented in 
in a long term, depending on what you are working on, and that the actual results are even evaluated by these participants. And when you are seen as equals and as pairs in this process, is when you would not be working towards just filling a quota, but really towards establishing collaborations that are really taking into account others' views, specifically disabled society and feminist views. Thank you. I wanted to know a little bit about some of the barriers or challenges. I mean, you've picked up on on some of them along the way. I don't know if there were any others that you wanted to highlight at this stage. Well, I would say, so coming down from this initial stage, you know, where we had very little information and we were trying to mimic what other countries were doing in terms of their national policies, but also realizing that their national context did not fit into the Mexican context, first of all, because the, that the vaccines that were available were not the same ones. And secondly, because we did uh, have, I think, a very different epidemiological perspective in terms of the impact on maternal mortality, we had to quickly uh, move ahead. We were very successful, I think, in, in implementing a tailored policy that included vaccination for pregnant women in the country. I think it was a policy that was quite different from what we were seeing at the moment, But now, just looking back and in retrospect, we do realize that uh, having analyzed the risks for pregnant women in terms of death from COVID were worth implementing the policy. We do now know that maternal deaths from COVID are our first cause of death. We have lost track from our international goals in terms of moving towards the reduction of maternal mortality, aiming towards the 2030 international goals. And one of the challenges, I think, has been the actual uptake of this policy from the population side. We continue to see maternal deaths from COVID. And when we analyze these deaths, we find that these women were not vaccinated. This brings in many questions because even though you're offering the vaccine and that we've made many adaptations to the national policy, given that we have many types of vaccines that are available, but trying to protect the ones that are suited for pregnant women, We continue to find that women are dying from COVID. It's our first cause of maternal death. These women are dying in a way explained because they, they were not vaccinated. So there's a question around what the barriers are for a uptake of, of vaccination. And we find, for example, and this is more than anything anecdotal evidence that signals towards a lack of a view and a lack of uptake on evidence-based information from the health provider side, where we know they are not fully convinced of recommending vaccination, even though we are seeing this in an epidemiological analysis of the actual benefit of receiving a vaccine. So that is one of the very clear barriers that we, we have still to overcome. We have implemented communication strategies and whatnot, but still see that this the, that the issue of vaccinated uh, status uh, in pregnant women remains as a, as a challenge. The other thing, and I'd like to give an example of this, is that we still lose sight on the very important issue of 
protecting human rights and specifically sexual and reproductive rights and reproductive autonomy, specifically with regards to, to vaccination and COVID vaccination status. And among the dynamics of these uh, technical groups that were established, there is a specific group that is looking at adverse events from vaccine and reviewing severe adverse events. So this week specifically, we received the case of a girl that was pregnant at 13 years and she had by mistake received a type of vaccine that was not recommended for her age group as there is a lack of evidence for use in adolescent population. So when I try to exemplify that there is a lack of view on reproductive health and on rights is that this case was brought into this expert group because they were looking at uh, the right uh, vaccine that uh, should have been used and the preoccupation was around deciding what to do with the second dose, if she should receive the same uh, vaccine or if uh, she should receive the appropriate vaccine for the age group. While not viewing at the case from a broader perspective, given that this is a girl that's pregnant, she's 13 years only, and the risk of this girl being in a situation of violence and that pregnancy being related to sexual violence or rape is very high. So our alerts went off because this is a case that needs to be investigated from a gender lens. The protocols to detect violence and eventually offer the termination of a pregnancy based on our Mexican law that protects women and, and allows access to an abortion when the pregnancy is caused by rape was lost totally. And we came in and um, actually reconvened with the group and really readdressed this case from this perspective. So I feel that at times the challenges are that we are looking uh, very nearsightedly at the at vaccination and at the pandemic, and we have lost oversight on what the pandemic really means in terms of women's health and uh, particularly for sexual and reproductive health. And I think that is one of the challenges still to be overcome around the health decision making and so that we're able to view the pandemic more broadly and that actually take a step back and reconfigure our strategies and our policies for the continuation of essential health services, included reproductive health services, where this girl should be seen as at risk socially and more specifically with a case of a pregnancy that needs to be reviewed with a different lens. I think the risk for her was much higher if viewed differently than just evaluating the vaccine error. Very good example of this silos perspective and this lack of gender and human rights and sexual rights perspective. And I was thinking about another example of this lack of human rights perspective in general related to the low coverage of vaccination among pregnant women. We are still struggling with that. And usually the health providers or the decision maker would say that it is a problem of the women. 
that the women does not know, that the women is not responsible, and so on. While we know that we also have a lot of barriers from the health providers themselves. We know that has been the case initially with the influenza vaccine. At the beginning, the health provider, the specialist, the gynecologist would not recommend to women to vaccinate themselves. And this is still the case. We know that health providers are still a barrier for the implementing this recommendation and this strategy of universal and strongly prioritizing the vaccine in pregnant women. And this, again, I think, goes back to the topic of not including pregnant women in clinical trials for drugs and vaccine and so on. So it's like this problem of seeing women and pregnant women and adolescent pregnant women more as objects to protect, not as subjects of human rights, of sexual and reproductive rights with their capacity to make responsible and capable and respectable decision on their bodily autonomy. So again, this must be a transversal strategy to implement and force into the decision-making process, the analyzing process of the public health bodies in general. And it regards to termination of pregnancy, to this decision-making, to everything, to respectful techniques and so on. There is a huge body of implementation of public policy always with this perspective. Thank you both. I think the, the really concrete examples that you're giving are ringing so true and really demonstrating the extreme shortcomings in the system in terms of how women and girls are viewed and the direct impact that's having on health. I wanted to ask, I guess, in terms of where things currently stand, you've talked about the barriers that exist in terms of uptake at the moment and issues related to that. Was there anything else you'd like to add in terms of next steps and this partnership with the technical group, perhaps in terms of how it's planning to evolve or looking to the future a little bit as well? Well, I think currently these policies have been set forth, they have been implemented. I'm sure they need a constant review, which is a work that we continue to do in collaboration with, with civil society. We will share our uh, national uh, policy for the, the mitigation of COVID-19 on pregnancy, birth and the postpartum period which contains this specific policy on vaccination for pregnant women. I think this work will continue as new evidence is documented both nationally and internationally. And we will continue to work together towards breaking these barriers that remain and where we continue to see that the impact is not going to be easily mitigated because I think COVID is highlighting our structural and access barriers to a public health system that was not in its best condition. And the lessons learned will continue to 
to surge and be made evident so that we continue to build these collaborative processes in terms of public health policy. But I, I do see that one of the lessons learned, I think, brings us back to how these decision-making roles in government are still to be occupied by women. Because only then, and as we are able to break these imbalances, these current imbalances, will we be able to really bring in a gendered lens that is there in case of another a public health emergency, but also to break these structural imbalances at many different levels, both uh, seen in, in health indicators, but also in terms of labor and what happens internally in a structure that is very hierarchical within the public health system and the administrative side within government. And where we, we continue to see cases of violence and of gender imbalances that will not be broken unless we do work together with civil society to push for women-led roles at very high levels of decision-making. Completely agree. I think that you can see that in this dialogue we have this complementary view, but above all a common uh, perspective. And sometimes I say that all civil society organizations should make a sabbatical in the public health services and vice versa. Public health authorities should have a sabbatical year in the civil society organization so that we have this common perspective view of the gender challenges that are present in every aspect, in this case of health, both in normal times and more so in case of emergency. We must keep these lenses on to be able to really provide sustainable solutions and just solutions to everybody and to leave no one behind. It's been another superb episode where we have heard powerful and very specific examples from Mexico of what can be achieved in terms of gender equality and health when meaningful partnerships are formed with feminist civil society actors and government departments. In the last episode of this mini-series on the power of feminist civil society, we will hear from two long-standing experts and advocates on the need to rebuild connections between feminist civil society actors and researchers as the field of violence against women has progressed. We'll also explore the transferable insights that can be learned from this experience and taken and applied to other health areas. Finally, if you haven't already, please visit the Gender and Health Hub website, where you can find Jessica's think piece on learning from and with feminist activists, lessons from the field of preventing violence against women and girls. So go to our website at www.genderhealthhub.org, or you can visit the UNUIIGH website, which is www.iigh.unu.edu. Or you can find us on Twitter. Our UNUIIGH handle is at UNU underscore IIGH. 
or the Gender and Health Hub Twitter handle, which is at Gender Health Hub. And also send us your feedback and suggestions via email. Our email is iigh-info at unu.edu. Thank you so much once again for listening and until next time. This is a podcast recording by the United Nations University International Institute for Global Health. The views expressed are those of the speakers only. Thank you.